0: Amen. Amen. All right. Praise the Lord. If you got a Bible this morning, Revelation chapter three, are the lights a little low to you guys or, or is, am I losing my sight right now? I feel like I'm looking at a, uh, a cave. Uh, can we bump the house lights just a little bit? Because when people sleep, I want to see them like personally. I want to be able to find out exactly who that is. Uh, OK. Revelation chapter three. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's good. Is that are you guys OK with that? That's not too much. I don't want you to get too comfortable uh, before the preaching. You won't be comfortable when the preaching starts, I promise. All right, Revelation chapter 3. Uh, we are several weeks into a series in the book of Revelation studying the seven churches of Asia Minor. And, and we're not going to review everything this morning uh, of, of the ground that we've covered. Just know, last week we started in Revelation chapter 3 studying the church at Sardis. And so Christ writes specifically to seven churches in Asia And in each of those churches, there's something that we can learn about the local church that we can glean from that church. Every church has a unique uh, perspective and circumstance that they're going through. This church in Sardis is no different. As a matter of fact, when when we studied this church last week, we learned some interesting things about the city of Sardis. It's a unique city in history. It's only mentioned one time. In the Bible, it's mentioned in Revelation chapter 3, but when you study history, there was a famous kingdom called Lydia, and it would have been around 500-ish BC, and it had a famous king, Croesus, that ruled over that kingdom, and during his reign in Sardis, it was during his reign that they were able to discover the technology and the process to purify metal, they they were able to separate gold from silver in a refining process and because of that they had metal coinage with a purity that was never known before worldwide so Sardis historically could begin minting pure silver and pure gold and so they became the standard for almost a global economy okay and and, and again as we've we've studied these seven churches historically there's an application Presently, there's an application for us. There is a prophetic application for each of these seven churches in in biblical prophecy. It is very interesting that in Sardis, Sardis is famed in history as the place where modern currency is invented. They were the standard of global trade, their gold was the measure of what gold was across the world platform because it was the purest. Silver was the purest out of Sardis, and so and there's a st- there's a saying that says if you're as rich as King Croesus, that meant that you were as rich as that king in Sardis. Just kind of a saying that came from that city historically, but inspirationally, as we study this church. It also points a a, a picture for us, it paints a picture for us historically, inspirationally of all of church history as we study these seven churches from from the, the church of Ephesus to the church of Laodicea, God not only historically had real churches in the first century, but God also paints a picture of all of church history through these seven churches And so, inspirationally, we learned last week that Sardis represents the church period from 1000 to 1500 AD. In other words, there's a period of time when you look back in church history, as John was looking back, that that he sees this group of people called Sardis. And the name Sardis literally means red ones. And so, Sardis represents for us in church history a tremendous time of church persecution and bloodshed upon true Christians, people that didn't ascribe historically to a universal church system, to a false religious system, because they didn't buy into that. Because of that, they, they, they gave their life. They, they literally gave their life because of what they believed. They believed the authority of God's word. They believed that salvation is by grace through faith, they believed in the authority and autonomy of the local church. They didn't believe in infant baptism. They didn't believe in, in uh, uh, transubstantiation concerning the Lord's Supper. And because of that, they were martyred. And God looks back on that time in history and says, you know what that is? That's Sardis. Because there's, there's a group of people who were covered with Christ's blood spiritually who were now covered with their own blood physically because of because of what they stood for. And, and we've said that not only does each of these seven churches paint a picture for us in church history, but there's a prophetic application. In other words, as we study these seven churches, God also is giving us a, a foreshadowing of a time of tribulation where, where the Antichrist will set up a false religious system and will push that agenda worldwide, and yet there will be people that overcome that and resist against that. Revelation 17 and verse 6 gives us the doctrinal application of what we're studying in these seven churches. It says, I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And what John is seeing is is this religious system called Jezebel that shows up in full force in the tribulation period. And man, John sees that thing and he sees that the blood of the martyrs of Christ and the blood of the saints are are what are filling the gut of this woman. And John is like, man, that's, that's just amazing. He's blown away. It's unbelievable as he sees that. And, And so, and so that's what we've seen in Sardis last week. And then what we said is every seven, every church of these seven churches, Christ reveals himself in a certain way. In other words, that church is unique, it has unique challenges, it has unique circumstances, and Christ reveals himself to each of those seven churches uniquely because they need to know a certain characteristic about him to overcome their challenges. And so the way Christ revealed himself to the church at Sardis is found in verse 1. It says, under the angel of the church in Sardis, write these things, saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And so Christ reveals himself to this church as he that has the seven spirits of God. And, and maybe if, if you're new this morning, you're like, wait a second, I thought there was only one spirit of God. Isaiah 11 verses 1 and 2 is where you want to go because when we compare scripture with scripture, we find that the spirit of God is the spirit of the Lord, number one, and, and he's the spirit of wisdom, number two, and and he's the spirit of understanding, number three, and and he's the spirit of counsel, number four, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And so when we compare Scripture with Scripture, there is no uh, inconsistency. The seven spirits of God are manifest and clarified in Isaiah 11.1. It's the fullness of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And can I just tell you, that church that was being persecuted and and was resisting a universal global church system, what they needed was the fullness of the Holy spirit of God. And if that church needed the fullness of the Holy spirit of God, this church needs the fullness of the Holy spirit of God. We need to have an understanding and a utilization of the spirit of the Lord and the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding and the spirit of counsel and of might and of knowledge And of the fear of the Lord. We need that to overcome. We need that to be successful in our walk with Christ. And so Sardis needed that. And then what they needed was they also needed the reality of a local church because Christ said, in my hand, I have the seven stars. And those seven stars are clearly defined as the angels of the seven churches, seven unique individual independent churches that existed in Asia Minor there was a heavenly representation and certainly an earthly representation and here's the point for 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 Sardis to overcome they needed to tap into the authority and structure and opportunity of a local church and man listen we we have to appreciate our local churches because 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 God is not interested in an ecumenical organization when, when we talk about the body of Christ, eighty-five to ninety percent of times the word "church" is used in the Bible. It is a local assembly of believers. The universal church has never met. We'll meet at the Rapture, as we're as we're going up. And, and so, you, globally throughout the Scripture, God's emphasis is on the local church. Christ's emphasis is on the local church, not the universal church, in a in a systematic way. And so Christ writes to seven churches. He doesn't write to one world religious system. And it's through the local church that, number one, we assemble. We talked about that last week. It's through the local church that God has ordained his biblically ordained leadership. It's through a local church that we have pastors and deacons. Those are the offices of leadership that God gives us. It's through the local church, just like next week, that we observe the ordinances. And that's why you need to be here. Don't miss the Lord's Supper because it's administered through the local church. It's the local church's job to train believers. In other words, we're called to disciple our saints, man. And God help us. God help us to stop outsourcing evangelism to parachurch organizations. And God help us to stop outsourcing training to Bible colleges and seminaries. We ought to be able to train and teach the saints of God in the house of God. Hello? I mean, listen, man, I, and I get wrapped around the axle a little bit this morning. You'll just have to forgive me. I've had two cups of coffee and two donuts. I am wound up, man. I, it just blows my mind. I, it makes me wonder what in the world is the local church for if we're not doing that? I mean, are we just going to meet on Sunday morning, have coffee, have donuts? sing a couple of songs, but we're going to outsource the ministry and the training of the saints to every other organization on this planet except the thing that Christ died for. Give me a break, man. We, got we have to get focused as a local church, and we have to be reminded this is where God raises men and women. He trains men and women. He equips men and women. And oh, by the way, it's through the local church that he sends, he sends missionaries through the local church, not some mission organization, not, not some parachurch organization. It's through the local church, which means that if you're part of a local church, you ought to struggle with the call to go. Because nobody else is going to do it if you and I don't do it. And it also means we ought to struggle to give because I don't see anybody in the room that speaks Albanian. You might surprise me, but I doubt it. I've been to Albania a couple of times. I, I'll know if you're bluffing. <laughs> I'll know if you're bluffing. So, so if we can't go to Albania and we're not fluent in Albania, we can partner with people that can and that do, and we can see God work miraculously through them. Okay, so, so, so that's as far as we got last week. This morning, we're going to pick up on the third point, because in each of these seven churches there's a commendation. Sometimes as Christ addresses each of these seven churches, if there's anything good to say, well, he says it. And so in verse, verse one, look at what Christ says. He says, I know thy works that thou hast a name that thou livest and are dead. And if you're like me, when you read that, you'd say, well, that doesn't sound like a commendation. Well, it's not. But we need to cover that point so we can get to the actual commendation. So this church at Sardis, they had a name that, it li- they, that, they, that they lived, and yet they were dead, okay? And, and listen, th- that's hard for me to believe as a church. Can I just say that? And here's the reason why, because First John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12 says this, This is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the son hath what? Has what? And so listen, if you have the son, you have what? But he's writing to a church and he says, Listen, you have a name that you live, but you're dead. And man, what a what a convicting statement, and also what a contradicting statement. Because if you have the son, according to the scripture, you have life. You know, the disciples in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26 were called Christians first in Antioch. They had a name, Christian, right? Little Christ. They were called Christians in Antioch. And yet in Sardis, there were people that were called Christian, right? It was a church, and yet it was a dead church. It was a dead church. And and a dead church, don't take this the wrong way, it's just a group of dead Christians. It's just a group of dead Christians. Okay, man, how was that a commendation? That, well, that's not. We'll get to the commendation in a second. But let me ask you a question: Have any of you ever had the privilege or enjoy like snow skiing, getting up into the mountains in the snow, Colorado? Any of you? A couple of you are doing that? Okay, so I've been snow skiing like one time, ever, and uh, went to Breckenridge, went to to Denver. Uh, it was an awesome trip. It is interesting, if you've never been in that environment, number one, how thin the air is at the top of a mountain, and number two, how cold it is. Like, you're sweating, but you're freezing. Does that make sense? I mean, you are literally freezing, and if you are as skilled of a skier as I am, you spend a lot of time on the ground, all right? As a matter of fact, the first two days are, are, it ought to be called crawling instead of skiing because there's not a whole lot of skiing, or, or it ought to be called falling, and, and so I'm in Breckenridge, and I'm, and I'm learning how to ski, and I'm going to ski school. And then the second day, if you if you know my personality, you know this is true. I got frustrated. I know it's a shocker. It's really a shocker that I get with I would get frustrated with anything. And so the second day, I was supposed to go back to ski school, and I just got mad because like five-year-old kids are zipping by, and I'm just like falling. You know, they're just ripping and roaring. They don't even have sticks. They're just doing the thing with their feet. Shh, and I'm like, they go by, and then I just fall over. Okay, so I was like, I'm done with this. Uh, and so I got my friend. I said, teach me how to get on and off the lift, the ski lift. <laughs> He's like, you can't even stand. What? Don't worry about that. <laughs> and so we did. We got, we got on and off the lift, and I crashed and burned, you know, off the lift a, a few times or whatever. Finally, I was just like, that's it. I'm going, I'm going to this top, top of this mountain by myself, uh, just me and, me and Jesus, you know, type thing. And so I got up there, and I started skiing down. And I mean, I was like, okay, this is... I've actually got it, you know, wide, wide swinging strokes. This is a green mountain, by the way. It's, it's like green as in, like, baby mountain. Like, the five-year-old kids are, whip, you know, whipping past me. So I'm skiing down this thing, and then I can't stop, and I crash and burn in the woods, you know. And I'm, like, this deep in the snow. And I'm struggling to get out, and I'm sweating, and I'm probably not using church words and, you know, things like that. And, and so... And I got to thinking, man... I might die up here on this mountain. Like, how do I get out of this snow? You know what I'm saying? It's a frustrating thing. And then you start getting cold, and then you get tired. And you're cold, and you're tired, and you're stuck. And it's like, is this even worth it? And, and, and man, there's some weird things that go through your head. They, they say of people that freeze to death, the thing that you can't let a person that's stuck in the snow or in the ice that that's freezing the thing you can't let them do is go to sleep if they just close their eyes and go to sleep they're as good as dead and so somebody in a situation like that and again man I've not even been close to freezing to death in in my minuscule skiing illustration but the point is when somebody is at the point of dying the most pleasant and easiest thing to do is just to go to sleep And you have to do everything in your power to keep that person that's about to freeze to death awake, because if they go to sleep, it's over. And they don't die immediately, but it's a gradual progression of degrees, not just the temperature degrees, where once the body stops fighting for life, it's over. Well, can I just tell you, that's how most churches die in America, they die by degrees, and I don't mean temperature degrees, because most churches in this country and probably most churches in this city started right. They started with sound doctrine. They started with the fundamentals of the faith. They started with the right gospel, the right leadership, the right ordinances, but over time, and with a gradual slide, it began to die. And what was once alive and fruitful is now dead and barren. That's the church at Sardis that had a name that was alive. But Christ looked at that church and said, you're dead. So let's get to the commendation because Revelation 3 and verse 4 tells us that in Sardis, there were a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white. For they are worthy. And what's interesting is in Sardis as a whole, that church, although it had the right name, was a dead church. By the way, it was in a wealthy city. You can have a dead church in a wealthy city. Hello, Huntsville, Alabama. And. But there were a group of people in Sardis that had not defiled their garments. In other words, they had not committed spiritual adultery and fornication with a false religious system. They had kept true to the word of God. Now, historically, we know that the gospel got into Asia. Acts chapter 19 tells us that those that dwell in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. We know from Acts 19 and verse 26, as Paul's coming through Ephesus, that the reputation of Paul and his ministry team was that almost all of Asia had been converted. And so in the book of Acts, man, Asia and these churches in Asia absolutely were strong, biblical, disciple-making, gospel-preaching churches. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 19, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, the churches of Asia salute you. But man, listen, where they were once alive... Now they're dead. Now they're dead. And here's the commendation that God gives to those at Sardis. There's a few names which haven't defiled their garments. And so here's the, here's the key that we want to take away for us. God always has a faithful few. God always has a faithful few, no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation, You know, when you go back into the Old Testament, there were times where it seemed like the entire nation of Israel checked out on God. They went apostate. They were backslidden. They were carnal. They they were worshiping other gods. Man, Elijah himself dealt with the struggle. He would say, I'm the only guy left that still loves God and loves the book. And, And God had to remind Elijah, hey, bro, I appreciate your zeal, but you're not the only one. First Kings 19 and verse 18, when the Lord speaks to Elijah, he says, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees, which have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth which had not kissed him. So I can, can I just tell you that in the Old Testament, God always had a faithful few. There was a remnant, Always in the nation of Israel. And can I just tell you in the New Testament, no, no matter how apostate the church got, as we've studied through church history, as, we, as we've studied the progression of church history through this study in Revelation, there are people that deviated from God's word. They began to move away from it. They began to corrupt it. But there have always been people who have stood by the truth of God's word and they didn't bow their knee to Satan's counterfeit ecumenical system. They stayed true to the Word of God. And, and again, as we study this time period in history, 1,000 to 1,500 A.D., if you, if you know your history, this is the time of the beginnings of what's called the Protestant Reformation. That happens in this time period of the Sardis church period. But, and, and here's the second key in your notes. In Sardis, there were people who were for the truth of God's Word, And they were against, historically, the Roman Catholic Church before the Reformation. And so before the Reformation even started, there were people that never were part of a universal church system. There were people that just stuck to the book and that believed God's word. And man, they were called different things in different periods of time. And as we study this thing of the Reformation, and the reason it's important that we bring this up is because it connects to the period in Sardis in, in church history from 1,000 to 1,500 A.D. You need to understand that there were groups of people all throughout history that were never part of a universal church system. Because modern scholars would have you believe you're either Catholic or Protestant, That's a false understanding of church history. Here's the key. There are groups all through history that weren't trying to reform the universal church, the Roman Catholic church, because they were never in it. You can't reform something that you weren't in. And, And there were groups of people throughout history, and they were called different things, Man, they were never part of this false religious system. And again, if you're hearing this this morning for the first time, man, I'm not against any person that ascribes to that religious system at all. I'm not against that. Those people, I love those people. I want them to know biblical Christianity. But man, that system is different, man. There's something about that system that doesn't line up with the scripture. And so all through church history, there have been people that just believe God at his word. In the Ephesus church period, they were called Montanists, and they were against a priest class and a laity class. In other words, they were against the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. There were people in the very beginning that said, you know what? There's no difference, man. There's no priest class and just regular group of... There's no, there's no difference. We're all the same. And we may be gifted differently in the body of Christ, but can I just tell you, we're all the same. Our value in Christ is exactly the same because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And the people that stand in this pulpit, let me just tell you, we're no better than anybody. We're probably worse, quite honestly. We're not better than anybody. We don't have more value. We just have been gifted differently. And listen, the people that you don't see in the church that serve behind the scenes, they are just as valuable. They are absolutely just as valuable. As a matter of fact, many times, again, I, I am all for pulpit ministry, but I'm telling you, if we're not careful, pulpit ministry can take precedent over every ministry, and we've got to have all of it in a local church. So in the Ephesus period, they were called Montanist. In the Smyrna period, from 200 to 325 A.D., they were called Novatians. And these group, this group of people, they were against infant baptism. By the way, you won't find a single instance of infant baptism in the Bible. What about Moses? Well, Moses never got wet, by the way. If you're going to use that as an example, that's a poor example. He was in the water and he never got wet. Baptism comes after salvation, and it's always by immersion. There's no sprinkling of babies. There's no sprinkling of adults. It's, the method is a biblical prescription, just like the, the doctrine itself is biblical. Number three, in Pergamus from 325 to 500, they were called Donatists, They stood against Constantine. They stood against baptism for conversion. And if you remember historically what Constantine was doing, he was propagating a political and a religious system through Rome as the conquering emperor. And because because of his victory at Melvian Bridge, all of a sudden the entire Roman nation became quote unquote Christian. And it was sealed through baptism and yet Baptism is not what saves you. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that saves you from your sin. In Thyatira, from 500 to 1000 AD, these people were called Paulicians. They believed that the scriptures were the word of God. They preached against transubstantiation. What that means is that when somebody takes communion or the Lord's Supper, transubstantiation literally teaches that you're eating the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ, which also means that you're crucifying him every week. Or however many times that you observe that. Hebrew says that he died once for our sins. You're not gonna kill him again. You're certainly not gonna kill him weekly. And in the Sardis Church period, as we get to a thousand to fifteen hundred AD, man, there's a list of people, and they're not in your notes because because we don't have the white space on your paper. I get in trouble for putting notes on the backside. You know, if it's a two-page note Sunday. You guys get upset. So, but listen, in Sardis, they were called things like Cathari, and and the Bogomils and the Albeneges and and the Waldensians and the Hendricians and the Bulgarians and the Arnoldists and the Lollards and the Hussites and the Anabaptists. You see, all through history, there have been people who were never part of a universal church system. And, And listen, can I just tell you, they weren't doctrinally all sound Because you need to know that spiritually, the Word of God had been taken out of the hands of the common man. And so if you go home and say, man, I hear what you're saying, Jay, and I studied this group of people, but they're a little off on their doctrine. Well, the reason why is because the Word of God wasn't necessarily accessible. As a matter of fact, some historians say that that if you were to go back in these time periods and study the accessibility of the Word of God to the common man, or just in general... It would be one Bible for every 20,000 men. Now listen, you probably got about 10 of them at home. You got six different ones on your phone. You got an internet browser that can pull up any of them at any time. I think we can have a little grace with people that didn't have exactly sound doctrine, when they didn't have exactly access to God's word. But but they did have sound doctrine as it related to salvation. Listen again, man, I commend these groups for their faith and for their fervor. I'm not going to criticize them and maybe some of the error they had and the beliefs that they had because they didn't have God's word. But here's what they did have, and here's what they believed. There's there's kind of an overwhelming commonality with these groups of people. Number one, they believed that the Bible was the final authority in every matter. Do you believe that? So that means that you go to the Bible for the the answers to your questions, if you believe that. And whatever the Bible says, that's what you do. Do you still believe that? See, it's easy to say it's the final authority. Bless God. Amen, brother. Was it the final authority in your life? For the record, it's the final authority in this church. Number two, th- this group of people, whatever they were called through history, they believed that baptism was for believers in Christ and it was be- to be done by immersion after a profession of faith of salvation in Christ. In other words, they didn't baptize for conversion, they didn't baptize infants. They baptized believers in Christ, according to the biblical model. Number three, they believed in the ch- separation of church and state. In other words, they didn't believe that the state had any power to dictate what a church believes or teaches. Because when you have an authority over the local church, other than Jesus Christ, the head, there's going to be a problem. And they believed in local church autonomy. Number four, they rejected prayers to Mary. They rejected prayers to any saint. And they rejected prayers for anyone, quote unquote, in purgatory. Because purgatory is not a biblical doctrine. And then number five, they all rejected the mass as in transubstantiation, also known as transubstantiation. They rejected the literalism that you're eating Christ's literal body and blood, oh, by the way, to receive Christ. That's not the way you receive Christ. Okay, and so as we study this time of history, there were some people who never were a part of that religious system. And, 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 and there were other people that came on the heels that were certainly part of this Protestant Reformation, men like John Wycliffe, men like John Huss, men like Martin Luther. I think what God is trying to teach us through Sardis is the way you keep your garment pure is not to commit adultery with a false religious system. Can can you look at Revelation 16 and verse 15? It says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth, And keepeth his garments, lest he walk what? Naked, and they see his shame. And again, there is a prophetic application. Listen, one day the Antichrist one world religious system will absolutely entice the people on this planet and entice them to fornicate with it and commit spiritual adultery with it. And there will be people in the trib that absolutely keep their garments undefiled. But can I just tell you, as a church-age saint, doctrine matters. And you don't have to be part of a system that corrupts the Word of God. Number four is correction. And so, and so as we wind this thing down, we, we still got like 13 minutes, so you guys hang on. But, but let me just tell you that, that the commendation for this church was very brief. And it was for a few. It was just for a few people that hadn't sold out. Man, I hope you haven't sold out. I mean that. You don't have to give in to false religious systems. You don't have to have a name that's Christian and yet be dead. You don't have to be at one time in your life fruitful and now barren. You can be right with Christ no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the Christian culture. And so on the heels of that commendation now, Christ brings a correction. And here it is. Let's look at it in verse 1. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt know what hour thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. We'll get into that statement in a couple of weeks. Man, there's nothing worse than a dead church. and, and Christ himself. Is addressing this dead church. By the way, the only thing that you can do with something that is dead is bury it. I mean, you think about that for a second. You think, God forbid, man. I know we don't like talking about death in our culture. By the way, death is not finality. So a man who has died can be fitted with the best suit money can buy, he can be fitted with the best shoes money can buy, he can be fitted with the best tie that money can buy. And it won't change the fact that he's still dead. As a matter of fact, the only thing to do with a dead man is to bury him. And can I just tell you that just like a dead man, a church can be the same way. You see, you can have the best church building in the world. And and by the way, if you've had the opportunity to travel, at least in some of these places in church history, like Rome and, and England and other places, man, you will see amazing architecture as it relates to churches. Had the privilege to go on some of those trips. It blows my mind the things that they could do in stone and, and all the architecture and all the things. Man, you can have the most amazing buildings, you can have the biggest tech budget, the best cameras, the best audio video, the best seats, and the best music. But if that church is a dead church, it doesn't matter because it won't be able to reproduce life. And can I just tell you, man, listen, dead things start to smell. You ever had a dead mouse somewhere in your house, dead rat? It's kind of like you walk in the door, and it's like, ah, oh, where's he at? Some, some little field mouse has, has somehow gotten into my house. We had, this, we had this a couple of years ago. Well, two, inf- two instances. I won't, I won't, yeah, I'll go ahead and tell you the gross story. So I walk in my downstairs, and I'm like, oh, man, there's something dead. You know, there's something dead. And it, it's like faint, but I know this smell, man. It's, it's a dead something. And so, you know, I fire up a candle. I'm looking around. I'm like, well, surely, I mean, surely it'll just go away. Like whatever it is will decompose. The next day I come home, it's like 10 times worse. So now I've lit like 17 candles, you know, there's a fire hazard in my house and the smell is horrible and I'm spraying, you know, the the Febreze and I'm spraying everything in the house and I'm like, I can't find this thing. I'm checking the closets. I'm checking everything in the downstairs. It's not upstairs. It's not the, the middle floor. It's not the... It's right here, and so I'm like, gosh, it's got to be in the chimney. I bet it's in the chimney. I look up in the chimney. I can't see anything. Finally, I break down. I, I hate spending money. I'm a tightwad. So I, I finally break down, and I call the chimney clean guy, and I'm like, hey, man, I think I got something dead in my chimney. Uh, can you come? Can you come check it out? And, uh, you know, I pay the guy 100 bucks, 150 bucks, or whatever. He gets in there. He gets a tool. starts jamming up in the chimney. And, man, all these maggots fall out. And this squirrel carcass falls out. And it's putrid, man. It's disgusting. And I'm like, how much to get rid of that, man? I'll pay you $500. Like, get it out of here. You know, the guy didn't tell me, hey, man, if you just leave that alone, it'll be okay. That's not what he told me. He's like, this has got to go. We need, we need to throw this thing in the trash. And, and of course, he disinfected and cleaned, and, and the next day I could finally breathe again. But it was disgusting. Started to smell. It was deteriorating. Can, can I just tell you, if, as a church, we ought to take that as a warning. Because you know what? A dead church, man, will start to smell. And here's what people do when a church starts dying. They try to embalm it to keep it around. Let's mummify that thing so that we don't have to bury it. I've seen it where churches hold on to buildings. There's three families left, and they hold on to empty buildings and empty parking lots with no intention of ever seeing a person saved, ever seeing a person baptized, ever seeing a person discipled to maturity. But bless God, we got us a building. Now, what you've got is a dead church. Now, I'm thankful that we serve a God that's able to raise the dead. Hello? Aren't you thankful? I mean, listen, Christ has the prescription for resurrection. He had a prescription for resurrection for Sardis. He has a prescription for resurrection for any church that's lingering its toes on its deathbed. God is able to raise the dead. And by the way, if you're saved, he did that for you. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says, And you hath he quickened, he's made you alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. You see, your sin was so bad that it made you dead in your relationship with God. You were dead in your sin and your trespasses, but through faith in Christ, God made you alive. He resurrected you. Colossians 2 and verse 13, it says, You, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, have he quickened together with him, having forgive you all trespasses. Christ is able to fully save us and fully resurrect us. And if Christ can raise a dead sinner, well, I believe he can raise a dead church. I believe he can. And here's how he does it. Here's the prescription that God gives Sardis. Number one, be watchful. We're going to go through this quick. Be watchful. In other words, be spiritually aware. Remember the illustration I gave you about skiing in the snow, man. You can't fall down and go to sleep. you got to stay awake or you'll slip off into eternity, man. You'll, you'll slip off without any spiritual awareness. Romans 13, verse 11. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we believed the night is far spent. The night is the church age. The day is at hand, the day of the Lord. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envy, but put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. You know what he tells Sardis? Wake up, be watchful, open your spiritual eyes. Being watchful is always connected with faith. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, it says, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Watching is connected to prayer. 1 Peter 4, 7, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. We have a Wednesday night prayer meeting. It starts at 630. You should come Amen. so that you can be watchful. Man, God's blessing Wednesday nights. You don't want to miss Wednesday night. Why? Because it keeps you from dying spiritually. And there's some things we ought to watch for. we got a devil that we need to watch for. We need to be sober and vigilant because we have an adversary, the devil, that's walking as a roaring lion, walking about, seeking who may just devour. We need to watch against temptation. We need to watch against apostasy. And we need to watch for the second coming. Sardis needed to be watchful. How watchful are you? Do you have your spiritual eyes on? Are you spiritually aware of what's happening? Are you spiritually aware of sound doctrine? Are you comfortable just being religious? Number two, the prescription was to Sardis, you need to strengthen the things which remain. Look at this verse. Strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. And what that tells me is that in Sardis, there were some things that were already dead. But in Sardis, there were some things that were on the doorstep of death. And Christ looks at that church and says, listen, there's some things that ain't dead yet. You need to take spiritual inventory of those things that are ready to die. And you need to get them stronger so they don't die. In other words, use it or lose it. We had that saying in physical therapy. I worked in physical therapy for about 20 years, and, and, man, that was a common phrase that we used. We would rehab people after surgery, after an accident. I mean, we got to get you stronger. And everybody loves physical therapists. Pain and torturer, pain and torturers, you know, physical terrorism. We've, we've, been, we've been called it all. You PTs, man, you physical torturers, you know, terrorists. Okay. Give me 20 more. (laughs) Shut up and give me 20. Okay. So, so man, there's something about strengthening what you have. You know, when you got saved, that wasn't the end of your walk with Christ. That wasn't the end of Christianity for you. That was actually the beginning. And, and, And so your walk with Christ needs to be a walk that's strengthened. Look at Acts 18 and verse 23. Paul understood this. Because after Paul went through and preached the gospel into areas in his missionary journeys, Acts 18 and verse 23, it says after he'd spent some time there, he departed and he went all over the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order. Here's what he did. Strengthening all the disciples. Do you know that getting saved is not the end goal? Now that may be your end goal, but that's certainly not Christ's end goal. Being saved is different than being strengthened because they're spelled different. And you too can be a pastor one day. <laughs> they're spelled different because they're, they're different words that mean different things. You see, you can be saved but weak in the faith, and you can be weak in the word. You can have a name, but before long, you'll be spiritually dead if you don't grow strong. You'll be unfruitful. You'll be barren you'll be Sardis. So strengthening is a sign of, of, of maturity, right? Uh, we know from 1 John chapter 2 and verse 14 that spiritual young men are strong. Why? Because the Word of God abides in them. They, they've grown to maturity to where the Word of God abides in them, and through that strength, they're able to overcome the wicked one. The wicked one operates in false religion, false doctrine, and so that strengthening is our, is our inner man, according to Ephesians chapter 3. And listen, can we go back to, to, to ch- kind of church history for a second? Those people from 1000 to 1500 AD, those, those early reformers and, and even the, the Protestant Reformation, listen, they got a lot of things right, but the truth is they were weak doctrinally in other areas. They didn't grow in the Word of God. They didn't have sound doctrine exe- exegetically. The truth is we all need to grow in our relationship with Christ. Getting saved is just the beginning. It's not the ending. Are you perfecting your knowledge of God's word? And so the strength program of any local church, the strength training program, it's discipleship. It's discipleship. It's it's just like Planet Fitness, though. I mean, you can pay the membership and never do anything with it. And even though a church has discipleship, and maybe you're a member of a church that has discipleship, just because it's available doesn't mean you do anything with it. And and by the way, just because you went through 18 lessons of discipleship doesn't mean automatically that you grew stronger. If it didn't get into your heart, if it didn't get into your spiritual inner man, you just had an experience in intellectualism. It's kind of like me. Again, I'll confess my sin. I worked in physical therapy for 20 years. I know all the exercises to do and how to do them and how to run and how to lift weights and how to rehab and all that. But as I put my shirt on this morning, I was like, oh man, that gut is getting, It's, it's, it's a little more than I remember last time I buttoned these pants. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I, I intellectually got it all figured out. I could, I could talk all day long with you about rehab and exercise and physical therapy. We could talk all day long. But the application is not real in my life. You've heard me struggle with that. I, I struggle with that personally. You say, well, you're skinny. Well, skinny ain't healthy, okay, just for the record. Uh, and so, and so the, the same thing's true of discipleship. Even though it's available, we have to take advantage of it and apply it to our life. Number three, Christ tells this church to remember remember how you've received and in, in other words man remember how you grew how you became alive you, you, you became alive and grew through the word of god so it's hearing god's word that brings an understanding of sound doctrine second peter chapter 1 can i just tell you that sometimes we need to be reminded like if you ever shown up at a church and said man I, I didn't get anything out of that everything he said i knew that now nobody don't raise your hands if you think that by the way but but in a reality, th- that's probably true. Just because you know it doesn't mean you don't need to be reminded of it. I mean, you told your wife you loved her once, right? When you got married. Can you can you remind her? It's better for your relationship if you remind her. Second Peter chapter one, 12 to fifteen, Peter writes, this is his, his his final epistle before he dies. He says, Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them and be established in the present truth. I mean, Peter's writing to people that knew some things and that were living things. And yet he said, I still want you to remember. Yeah, I think it's meet or suitable as long as I'm in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able, after my decease, To have the things always in remembrance. Can I tell you that sometimes in church, it's just good to be reminded? It's good to be reminded of what the Word of God says. Hey, I already knew that. Well, you're not an Athenian, man. You don't need to hear some new thing every time you show up. Acts chapter 17 and verse 21. Sometimes you need to be reminded of what you already know and what you're living out. It reinforces your faith. Number four, Christ told that church to hold fast. And what you're gonna hold is really important. Timothy tells us that we're, we're to hold the form of sound words. Titus tells us in Titus 1 verse 9 that we're to hold fast the faithful word as he's been taught. And by the way, if God wants you to hold his word, that means it's got to be accessible to you. He, he's not going to ask you to hold something that you can't have. And so we need to hold fast to God's word so that we're strengthened. And then lastly is the four-letter four word in most churches repent. You say that's more than four letters. And I knew the smart crowd showed up this Sunday morning. But man, that's the word that we don't like in church. Here's what we'd rather have in church. You ready? Reform. I'd rather just reform. I'd rather just do better, try harder, I'd rather just reform my broke, sinful, carnal, backslidden life. I'd rather reform and just try harder instead of repent. But those are two different words because they're spelled different. (laughs) Repentance means a change of mind that results in a change of life. It's a 180-degree turn. It's a change of direction. And by the way, this was a command to a church to repent. Well, a church is made up of individuals. Dead churches need to repent. And so do dead Christians. Because no amount of reformation is going to fix a spiritual problem. But repentance opens the door for reconciliation. Reconciliation. And so, man, we need that, amen? We can learn from Sardis. If we're not careful as a church, we can have a right name, but be dead in the water and be unfruitful. And and, and from Sardis, we need to understand a church is made up of, of people. And a dead church means dead Christians. So, what do we do? Well, we need to watch, we need to get strong. We need to hold fast some things. We need to repent of some things. We need to remember how God worked in our life. We need to trust in him. All right. We're not done with Sardis. We'll come back in a couple of weeks, but let me pray for us. And let's just consider what we've heard this morning as we pray. Father, thank you for the morning. I pray these words have not fallen on deaf ears. God,